chapter 2. We've been looking at the discipleship and the other ministries in the church that Titus was being given an admonition to uh, make sure took place, and now he was going to be saying that it can only be accomplished by God's grace. Titus 2, 11 through 15. Hear the word of God. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. What an awesome, awesome privilege it is to have Bibles in our homes, uh, Bibles that we can follow along with in the pulpit. Father, in so many countries, this is not true, and we glory in it. And it is our desire that we would grow in our ability to understand that word, to live it out, to tremble at your word. And Father, I pray that you would be glorified in our responses to the preaching of your word, that you would uh, minister through me, anoint my lips, and enable me to faithfully bring that word, quicken the word to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> You've all seen the bumper sticker that says, um, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. Now, uh, while I think that's a lousy excuse for some of the uh, education that the government has been pawning off on citizens, it is true that ignorance is costly. And there is a lot of ignorance about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in America, uh, probably in some other countries as well. But in our age specifically, there is a lot of ignorance. For example, there are evangelicals who confuse works righteousness uh, with grace. And there must be a lot of them because there are so many churches that have endorsed the evangelicals and Catholics together documents which obscure grace by the way in which they mix it. On the other hand, there are other evangelicals who go to the other extreme and they act as if grace is so antithetical to law-keeping and to good works that you can have nothing to do with it. And they forget the fact that it was Christ's law-keeping that earned the favor, that earned the grace so that we could be saved. And we forget that even though we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law, God's grace continues to work. And what is it working to do? It's working to cause us to be holy and to be law-keeping. Uh, there are some who think that uh, grace is only needed for conversion. Uh, that's the time of our justification. Obviously, we need the grace of the Lord for His forgiveness, uh, washing away of sins. And then they go on and they live the rest of their lives as if sanctification is from our own strength. No, we need grace for the whole of our lives. Others define it in a way where they think um, grace means that God really doesn't care that much about our sins. It's not a big deal. Uh, and others think that grace means that we need to get justified over and over again. There are some people think you can lose your salvation, and then you get saved again, and you lose it. So you're getting justified many times, getting born again many times too. But, um, and they never can grow in their security, in their walk with God, grow in sanctification because they're always going back to the first foundations and they're not even understanding those. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at what the Scriptures say grace is all about 
And uh, this passage talks a lot. Verse 12 says that grace teaches us something. It teaches us something. By the time we're done with this passage, I hope uh, that you will agree, you'll realize that uh, it is expensive and it is disastrous to be ignorant of what these lessons are of grace. Now, it's expensive, first of all, for the unbeliever because apart from an understanding of grace, we are lost. We all know that at the beginning of our walk, and we totally misunderstand grace if we think we can earn the grace or if we can contribute even a tiny bit to God's grace. And so I want to break down this verse uh, a little bit. If you look at verse um, uh, 11 there, it says... Uh, for the grace of God, the word grace there simply means the favor of God. And then there's the word salvation, which implies we're lost. Uh, we're in danger of, of, of hellfire. But I want you to notice the order in which favor and salvation comes. Uh, it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation. So the first thing to notice is that God's favor came upon us before we were saved. Otherwise, it couldn't favor couldn't bring the salvation, right? And if it came to us before we were saved, it means it came before our conversion. It came before we had faith and repentance in our conversion, uh, which means it came before we had anything within us that could earn any favor of the Lord. It com completely preceded anything that, um, that uh, is associated with salvation. And really, this is why we define grace as God's undeserved favor. We didn't merit a thing. From eternity past, God's favor, uh, what we call of unconditional election, God's favor was bestowed upon a people from eternity past, and that grace, that favor, ushers out into every other aspect of salvation. Scripture indicates it's by grace that we believe, it's by grace that uh, we repent, by grace that we're converted, that we are sanctified, that we're glorified. It's all uh, based on grace. Uh, but there's a certainty in these words that's encouraging as well. Commentators have pointed out the curious usage of an adjective for salvation. Now, in English, salvation is a noun. And it usually is in the Greek too, but here it's not. It's an adjective. And if you look at the form of the Greek, you can always tell which noun the adjective is modifying. And you, you can tell by its endings. It's a feminine singular nominative. And so it modifies the word grace, which is a feminine singular nominative. And so most commentators point out that literally this should be saving grace. Saving grace. It's not a grace that merely makes salvation possible. It is a grace that is always and effectively saving God's people. That's the intent, and that's why our versions here uh, translated it brings salvation to draw that idea out. Very strong, very encouraging word. And so it's an irresistible grace. A third thing to notice is that this prior favor of God that presently brings salvation in the lives of his people had to pierce the darkness. Now, you can't see it in the English uh, language there. It's very clear uh, in the Greek. If you look at the words, has appeared, uh, those two words are the Greek word epiphane, and that's what we get the English epiphany from. 
Okay? And it's a reference to illumination in the darkness. Now, it does deal with appearing. When you turn the lights on, things suddenly appear, right? And so it's appropriate to translate it has appeared. But in the Greek, uppermost in the Greek person's mind is the lights coming on. And so let me give you the dictionary's definition of this word. <clears throat> Definition's here somewhere. Here it is. To shine upon, to light up, to cause light to come upon some object by way of illuminating it, to illuminate, to cause something to be seen in the darkness. And so it's more than just appearing. Yes, there had to be an appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ at some point in history, but what he's talking about here is that the lights are coming on. He's using this metaphor of light to indicate not only did God's favor precede anything that we have done in order to earn that salvation, but we contributed nothing but darkness, and his light had to pierce that darkness. Uh, John starts his gospel by referring to this light. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light sh shines in the darkness. Luke starts his gospel by saying of Jesus, here was his purpose for coming, to give light, and by the way, that's exactly the same word that's translated has appeared in Titus 2.11. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Well, that's exactly what men, women, and children need to have before they can learn any lessons of grace. They have to have their blind eyes opened up, uh, the lights turned on, uh, as it were, so that we can understand the truths of the Scripture. And so there is absolutely no synergy here at the beginning of our Christian life between uh, God's grace and our man as if we're in some way reaching out to God. Uh, no, there is no synergy. It is God shining out of the darkness. On God's part, grace is sovereign. It's unconditional. On man's part, it's totally unmerited. Uh, all we contributed was darkness. God's favor contributed everything else. Now, the fact that Jesus appeared to all men or shone his light to all men or toward all men shows that this favor was not intended for some tiny little huddle of, you know, uh, uh, you know particularly privileged people. Uh, no, it was moving towards all men. Now, obviously, it's not all without exception. That's one of five uh, dictionary definitions of the word pontes, uh, each and every, that kind of all. So it's not all without exception, but it is all without distinction. Uh, the church is not some kind of a... Um, you know, a, a specialty group that's only for the rich or only for the elite. No, the schoolhouse of grace reaches out and it saves all without distinction. In other words, uh, it reaches to Jews and Gentiles that this book has been talking about, the old and the young, he's just finished exhorting, males and females, masters and servants, rich and poor to all. And so Paul is instructing us, how do you even get into this schoolhouse of grace so you can learn some lessons from grace? And the way he shows us is you can't do it on your own. You're dead in your sins and trespasses lying out there in the field and grace comes out of the schoolhouse and it picks you up, it carries you into the schoolhouse, it resurrects you, turns on the lights and then it begins to teach you. And so in verse 12 it says, teaching us that... And then we learn all kinds of lessons of grace. But we can't learn those lessons until we have been regenerated, until the lights have come on, until we have been saved. Now, once we're in that schoolhouse, we glory in the fact that grace has already been at work. 
from eternity past, but also in our regeneration and drawing us to himself. We'll glory about that all throughout eternity. But as we're in that schoolhouse, we're going to be taught all kinds of other lessons, and we're going to be given an insatiable appetite to learn, to learn from God. And so let's look at what it teaches us about sanctification. If point number one in your outlines there dealt with regeneration and justification, that's what happened at the beginning of our walk, this one deals with sanctification. It's our growth in holiness the rest of our lives. Verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, this is exactly the opposite of what many dispensationalists, not all, but many dispensationalists have taught in the carnal Christian theory. Uh, they deny that sanctification always follows justification. In the Bible, it always does. You cannot separate them. They're distinguished, but that always follows the other. Instead, they say that uh, sanctification is an option. It's definitely a good option. You know, you'll get rewards in heaven if you do that, but it's an option. Uh, and it is, it, it is possible for the Christian to continue to live in rebellion. Now, let, let's look at what true saving grace of God teaches us. In this verse, it teaches us two things. First of all, it teaches us something negative. Now, that's very instructive because in our culture, a lot of people who just emphasize grace, they don't want to have anything negative. But here it says grace is against something. It stands in opposition to something. It denies something, or as William Hendrickson translates it, it renounces something. What is it renouncing? It's renouncing ungodliness and worldly lusts. So the first thing we can say is if your version of grace is not renouncing uh, ungodliness and worldly lusts, it may indeed be a counterfeit grace, not the saving grace that the Lord uh, speaks about uh, in this book. If your grace does not stand against anything, it is not biblical grace. God's grace teaches us to renounce, to stand against uh, these things. Now, obviously, uh, we have to repeatedly renounce in our lives, don't we? Because we continually find the world and the flesh grabbing hold of us and making us fall into sin. But that grace keeps moving us to deny it and to renounce it and to move away from that ungodliness. And so uh, a grace that saved you by faith alone, apart from the works of the law and justified you is a grace now that increasingly makes you renounce those things. It also stands positively for something, stands for righteousness, but do notice the order. You can't stand for something unless you first take a stand against something. I mean, logically, that is really true. This is one of the things that Francis Schaeffer uh, emphasized over and over again. There were people that were quite willing to affirm truth, but they were never willing to counter the error, and so the error crept in anyway. And he says, you are not standing for truth unless you stand against something. So anyway, we've, we've dealt with that enough. Let's look at what it is that it stands for. It stands for that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, the word soberly is exactly the same word for rationality that we've looked at in verses 6, 4, and 2 earlier. And I love this. God saved us to be rational. Amen? 
Uh, rationality is a very, very important concept to God, and yet nowadays it is so common for people to say, if you have been touched by the grace of God, you're going to willingly embrace irrationality. And even in reform circles, you'll sometimes find this. You know, Vantillians, uh, uh, not all of them, uh, but there are some Vantillians who say, uh, yeah, we need to be ready to embrace contradictions, to violate the laws of logic and believe this. No, wait a minute. God didn't save us to be irrational. He saved us to be rational. There are other people who think that God's grace evidenced in your life is going to make you have holy barking and slithering on the floor. We have to say, no way. God saved us to be rational. It's sophronizo, okay? Thinking with your mind. And he's not saving us to be irrational. Some people think that the uh, evidence of a baptism of the Holy Spirit means you're going to be doing all kinds of irrational things. And the scripture says, no, God's grace saved us to be rational. Absolutely uh, to be rational. Um, some say they're allergic to theology. There are a number of pastors who told me, anything that has ology on the end of it, I'm allergic to it. Just forget theology. Let's get on with loving the Lord and practice. But what does God say? He says that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, that's your physical action and your obedience, and with all your mind, right? And so it's a counterfeit grace if it's a grace that says, let's be irrational, forget the mind, forget theology, forget all of those other things. That's a very, very interesting point that, that um, uh, the Apostle Paul brings up here. Okay, the next thing that grace teaches us is that we should live righteously. Any conception of grace that says, let us sin, that grace may abound. Paul says, God forbid. That is a false conception of grace. No way. God is interested in how we live. He is interested in righteousness. The next word deals with a life devoted to God, that we should live, he says, godly. Now, some translate that as devoted to God. When God's grace grips our hearts, it makes us desire to seek after God, to commune with Him, to have a life that is wrapped up in Him. And so God does not just uh, promote with His grace an intellectual Christianity. No, we don't just love God with our minds. We love God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, with all of our strength. Our whole life needs to be devoted to the Lord. And so if you're excluding grace from your emotional life, you've got a defective view of grace. If you exclude grace from uh, your activities that you're engaged in, loving Him was your strength, you've got a defective view of grace. Grace is teaching us that with our whole lives, we offer ourselves up uh, to the Lord. And so one of the things I would encourage you to do is to allow the boat of your life to go in the stream of God's grace. Don't park it on the bank and don't row against the current it will irresistibly lead you to all of these things in your life if you will align yourself with God's purposes and you say, Lord, I want to grow. I put my life on the altar, my boat's out there, let it flow where you take it, Lord, but I want it to grow in holiness. There's another phrase in there I think we need to look at uh, in verse 12. All of this is to be... Oh, first thing I should mention there is that this means that God's grace teaches us how to be sanctified in relationship to our own life, in relationship to others, in relationship to God. Those three words are dealing with those three relationships. But then it says that we are to do all of this in this present age. Now, what does that imply? 
it implies that it is possible to be rational, to be righteous, and to be devoted to God in this present age. And not only is it possible, uh, it's not even an option to wait till you get to heaven. You don't have to wait to get to heaven, and it's not an option as the... Um, uh, the, the, the non-lordship salvation, what's it, what's it called? Carnal Christian theory uh, says, oh yeah, it's an option. It's one way you can go, but um, uh, no. It teaches us we are to live this way in this present age, and literally it's in the now age. Noon is the Greek word. And to me, this is so encouragement. If we can live it in the now, that means God's given us sufficient grace where you can conquer the sins that you're struggling with. Uh, you can get through the problems that God uh, is uh, giving you by way of an integrity check. Now, the interesting thing about grace is that it does this gradually, not suddenly. And you can get that from the words teaching us. Uh, the words teaching us is from the same stem as pedagogue. Um, a pedagogue is a, a teacher, right? Well, William Hendrickson points out that a pedagogue leads children step by step. There's a logical progression, right? It's principle upon principle, and they don't learn everything, you know, in a moment of time. You know, there's a number of years of growth that's in there, and he says the same is true of grace. Grace takes us along slowly, and so if you're discouraged that you're not, you know, sanctified and holy and done with all sin instantly, eh, that's a faulty view of grace. The true view of grace is that we are growing, we're progressing. Yes, there is fighting, but there is a progression in sanctification. So any form of perfectionism that says uh, we can be instantly perfect or that we can live instantly and by some known secret above, um, uh, above known sin uh, is a defective view of grace. Grace is a pedagogue that gradually leads us. Now, there is a cost. There is no question about it. It's painful crucifixion is painful we're to crucify our flesh so there's a cost in growing in sanctification but let me tell you something the cost of not growing and having a view of grace that says sin is okay is far far more costly it'll cost you your marriage it'll cost you your family it'll cost you your business in fact it'll affect every area of your lives and really the cost of sanctification has been paid for by who by the Lord Jesus right and so he's enabling us to get through these struggles, and really it's an investment. And you're gaining interest, and then you reinvest the interest, and it keeps on growing. And so from start to finish, it's all of grace, even though we're a part of the process of implementing that grace. Verse 13, this is point number three. It's continuing sentence uh, of what God's grace is training us in. The third major point is it trains us to be driven by the future. And we're going to start flying now. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is flat out clearly called God here. Uh, this is a great verse to uh, bring to Jehovah's Witnesses. There's only one appearing. And since the article is before uh, God and it encompasses God and Savior, it's one person. And this one person at his one appearing is described as our great God and Savior. Who is that person? Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was fully God. He was fully man. And so a great verse to uh, use with JWs. But the second thing to notice is that God's grace <clears throat> will drive us to look forward to this appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ and consider that second coming of Christ as being a blessed hope. Not a scary hope, a blessed hope. 
In fact, in Romans 8, it says that the whole creation is groaning and travailing, eagerly looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Why? Because at the second coming, the, the curse is going to finally, every vestige of it, be removed uh, out of this universe. Thorns and thistles will be removed, all pain and suffering, uh, animals eating meat. Uh, anything you can think of related to the curse is going to be removed at the second coming. And history is moving toward that goal irresistibly. It's not disjointed as if what we're doing here is unconnected to the second. No, it's moving towards that goal. And so it makes us realize this is not all that was intended by God for planet Earth. Grace intuitively makes us have a holy dissatisfaction with the state of affairs here on Earth and the state of affairs here in our own life. <clears throat> it uh, makes us long for the final product. And yet what we do in the present age, verse 12, has a part of how we look forward to that day, verse 13, and we're not being passive, we're being zealous, verse 14. They're all tied together. We are denying ungodliness. We're not, we're not, you know, waiting to be bailed out of this world. No, we're trying to affect it. We're denying ungodliness, worldly lusts by rationality, righteous living, devotion to God, and by that we are hastening the day of Christ's second coming. We've got a job to do, and until that job is done, Jesus Christ is not coming back. And so point number four says that the school of grace teaches us to have a zeal for Christ's cause in this world. Sentence parts all logically connected. Any view of eschatology which takes away our zeal, verse 14, is a defect of eschatology. Any view of eschatology which is irrelevant to what we are doing right now, verse 12, is a defective eschatology. Verse 14 indicates, in the meantime... Looking forward to that hope motivates us to do all that we can to make sure we and this world are moving uh, toward that final pattern. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now that is as stark and bold a contradiction of modern antinomianism as you can possibly get. Now there is a $10 word for you. Antinomianism... Uh, means to be against the law. Anti, against, nomos is law. So just think of those two, anti-nomos, antinomianism is to be against the law. And I tell you, in the name of grace, antinomianism is rife, not just in the broadly evangelical church, within the PCA, within the Reformed movement. It is rife. And so what we're going to see here is they can teach grace, 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 all that they want, but if they ignore the purpose of grace that's laid out in this verse, they've got a faulty notion of grace. Notice the purpose phrase in this verse, is that he might, <clears throat> might redeem us from every lawless deed. Now, three things I want to highlight from that phrase. First of all, if we are redeemed from every lawless deed, that means there's more than just salvation from hell. There is salvation from the presence of sin in our lives as well. And that's exactly the purpose that the angel gave to Joseph during, at the incarnation. He said, here's the purpose for Christ's coming. You shall name his name Jesus, which means Jehovah saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. You have not learned the lesson of grace as God intended you to learn it if you just think that grace means a free ticket to heaven. Now, it does mean that. But if you think it has no relevance to what I am doing uh, here right now, Paul says, God forget, forbid. 
Jesus did not die to make us comfortable in our sins. He died to save us from our sins. Second, notice that sin is defined by the law. Okay, we're redeemed from every lawless deed. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. And so sin is anything that is against the laws of God. Any of the laws of God, if you're against that, that's a sin. That's the way he defines it. And so sin is not some nebulous bad thing out there that has no relationship to Old Testament law. Um, sin is lawlessness. And Hebrews 1, 9 says, Jesus hates all lawlessness. Uh, on the day of judgment, Jesus will say, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's Matthew 7, 23. And so obviously God's very interested in law. And those who resist the law are resisting God's whole purpose in sending the Lord Jesus Christ. They're ignorant of the lessons of grace. You have not learned the lessons of grace if you ignore the law. Lawlessness is antithetical to that. Grace enables us to keep what we could not keep in our own strength. Now, thirdly, I want you to notice how comprehensive this affirmation of the law is. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Any deed that could be described as being against the law is a deed that grace rescues us from. The whole law and every disobedience to the law is what is in view here. Now, this means grace teaches us exactly the same lesson that Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Listen to this. There, Jesus said this, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away... One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom to he of heaven. Failing to learn the lessons of grace has been disastrous in the church of Jesus Christ in America and in the Reformed Church. It's been absolutely disastrous. They have failed to be salt and light out there in the community, they fail to be salt and light within their families because they're ignoring the law of God. And uh, it's just sad to me to see people in the name of grace, not only resisting the law, but resisting anybody who's got the boldness to preach that law. And we have to say, no, the law, of, uh, the grace of, of Jesus teaches and affirms the law of God. Secondly, it teaches us to be zealous, not only to flee from lawlessness, but to be zealous for good works, which are defined by the law. Verse 14 goes on to say, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Several things to note here. First, God's grace purifies or cleanses you. And so you might feel kind of wasted this morning. You know, you've examined your life and you might wonder, boy, do I even have the grace of God uh, in my life because my life is preoccupied not with God's law, not with God's favor, not with closeness or any of the things that we've looked at. It's preoccupied with selfish pursuits. Well, here's what I would say to you. Don't worry about it. Flee to the cross of Christ. And throughout your life, flee to the cross of Christ for cleansing and forgiveness. And he promises that he will cleanse you, make you white as snow, and make his favor to shine upon you. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A second, grace purifies you for himself. What's the purpose of cleansing and purification so you can go on with your life and have your conscience feel good and just ignore God? No, it's to draw you closer to him, right? And so it says here, 
it, it purifies us for himself, not for yourself, for himself. We were made for God. God delights in us. And the whole purpose of grace was to make us closer to God and make God closer to us. Thirdly, God is making you to be his own special people. Now, the word special there uh, is defined in the dictionary this way, quote, being beyond usual, unquote. That's Strong's. In other words, you can't let the status quo of what the world thinks is normal define what you are. Grace makes you be redeemed so that you are beyond the usual. Okay, beyond the usual. You cannot measure what is normal by the world or even by the church. Grace makes us radically different. In fact, I think the King James uh, may have translated that as a peculiar people. Okay, we're different. Fourth, grace teaches us to be zealous for God's works, uh, for good works. And so if you are content to be a couch potato all day long, you may not have been learning the lessons of grace. God, grace saves us for the purpose of making us zealous for good works. It burns within us. It yearns for action. It yearns to be released into action. And so wherever true grace is, these characteristics will be present, which to me means there are many people in the evangelical church who probably are not saved. They probably have never experienced the grace of the Lord, and they need to flee to the cross of Jesus and say, Lord, cleanse me. Make me hate my sin more than I hate hell. Make me to love your righteousness. By your grace, change me and transform me. And so this whole verse is a rebuke to the modern church. Ignorance of what grace is all about has been costly. It has left the church in a messy shambles, and I think we need to pray that God would pour out the richness of his grace upon the church in America. Maybe we could even be a part of that reformation. <coughs> The last lesson of grace is that we should never stop learning. Verse 15, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Now, we already looked at that verse when we dealt with uh, Titus's uh, duties, but I think it's a great way to end what we're teaching here on the school of grace. The school of grace should give every student an insatiable appetite to learn from the scripture and to never stop learning. And so here's my question. Has God's grace been at work in you? If God has begun a good work in you, he'll keep working in you. He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so one of the ways of testing, have you started by grace, is, is God's grace working in you presently? If it is not, flee to the cross of Christ. But I trust that God's grace has powerfully changed you, is continuing to change you, and that the Lord would receive all of the praise and the glory. Amen. Father, thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. What an awesome testimony. What encouraging words, but also what scary, challenging words uh, these are as we examine the life of the church. And I pray, O oh God, that you would work your grace by the power of your Holy Spirit, transforming us, making us to be a people zealous for good works. Father, I pray that you would encourage each heart here as they set their heart on Calvary, on what Christ did, and as they appropriate the work of Calvary by faith. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>